Let us ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, the blessed one of Israel and all the world. Amen. So this week, as we take a look at this title, you'll say, Has, Have This Mind Be In You, which is a calling from Philippians chapter 2, and you'll say, but Pastor Dan, you said you were going to talk on, you were going to be preaching on the gospel readings during this time from Epiphany to Pentecost. Well, if we want to know and be of the mind of Christ, we need to study Christ. But I want us to use Philippians chapter 2 as a lens to remind us of why it is important for us to study what Jesus did, what his words are, and what his teachings were, clarifying the covenant promises of God. Let us consider Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those of earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, this again, the point of this is to say this is the lens. We need to have the, the view of Christ. We need to have his mind on things. Now, that, in fact, is not often the place that we start, if we can be honest with one another. And so here today, we're going to be looking at our passage in Luke chapter 6. But I want to start by, again, trying to give us the framework. If we look in Luke chapter 3, and you're going to see some connections here in just a few moments, but we'll see this. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Cephas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough ways smooth. And all flesh, what is that now? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. And of course, this quotation that you see is out of Isaiah chapter 40. But there's a couple of things that you have to take in mind here. As we consider this passage in Luke and we look to the passage that we'll be studying in depth today, we must be reminded of some very important things. Why does God take the time to tell us 
who the political leaders are of the day? Why does God take the time to tell us specifically who the high priests were? Because we must remember, thinking back to Philippians 2, what is the point? Jesus is Lord of what? Of everything. He is Lord now, he was Lord then, but he is Lord. He is political. You cannot have a good political system outside of Christ. And the things that he says are always about ruling. Jesus is king, and the question is, is he king in our lives? Is he king in our actions? Is he king over even our religious perspectives. This morning in Sunday school, we were looking at a letter that was mailed to the church this week, supposedly written from the perspective of God's voice, and it kept talking about these political and moral and ethical guidelines. And the whole point was, who's your king? And are you going to follow, and this was not truth, but they had their idea in this letter that they sent to us to consider as, a, as, as people to consider some sort of guidelines of how to live. Not godly guidelines, by the way. But here is the truth of it. Jesus is Lord. He is King. And so when He is speaking, when He is teaching, when He is tuning the perspectives of the political and religious leaders, it matters. We see this again following up in Luke 3, beginning at verse 7. Then he, that is uh, John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That is to say, we have an ancestral pedigree, or we go to the right church. But you should bear fruits worthy of repentance, because wrath is coming. Again, God's word, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That reminds us and tells us that God is going to rule in everyone's life even though he is gracious and gives us an opportunity to repent. On that last day, all the things that we've done, all our perspectives, if they are not his, are going to burn away. We know God's word tells us elsewhere that some will have everything they've done burn away and just the mercy of God holding them is what will sustain them. And of course, the people say this, so the people asked John the Baptist, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered them, He who has two tunics, let him give it to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying, 
to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now this is important. Look at what John says here. He, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and he will gather the wheat to his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he, that is John the Baptist, preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, what did he do? Being rebuked by John concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. A political leader didn't like what a religious, faithful man of God was saying, and they locked him up. They were trying to suppress the truth of God's word. And you look at these things that, that John was telling the people to do. These are not new teachings. These are the teachings of God's holy word from the Old Testament. People of God, never be deceived that the Old Testament is irrelevant to your life and understanding of God. But know and understand that his word wholly teaches us. Now, because we don't study it very often, many times we don't know what we're reading. We say, I don't get what, what's the purpose of all this. What is God is doing? Now, it's so important to notice that somebody is absent in all those people that are repenting and asking, what should we do? Who's missing? The religious leaders and the politicians. You don't see them up there saying to repent, and we get emphasized by that, by Herod locking John up and being unrepentant. Remember last week, the judgments that were given in our passage from Luke, following the establishment of the apostles, the new Israel? Jesus gives clear blessings that distinguishes the apostles as different from the current political and religious leaders. I would also point out that the Roman installed leaders are ruling Israel because of God's judgment. First, as Romans, in other words, these political leaders, first as Romans, but then even more so, totally upside down with a son of Esau, Herod, ruling over Israel. Those are clear curses of God for not being obedient, for the people of God not being obedient. It's interesting, clear from God's word, these curses, these woes are on Israel, but the high priests and most of the Sanhedrin are not interested in their God-given roles as intercessions for the world. They're worse than Jonah not even wanting the repentance of the Gentiles, but they simply want the submission of the Gentiles to them. They don't recognize the judgment that's upon them. That brings us to our passage today in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. And this point begins, the point I have in your notes says, I have enemies. It's really important. Luke chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to all those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those that spitefully use you. We must recognize that there are really only two types of people, only two agendas in the world. Those whose God is Yahweh and who are reconciled to Him through the atoning substitutionary work of Christ and those who are enemies of God and the work of Christ. The fallacy of neutrality has gripped our world and has even infiltrated the church. We live our lives, particularly here in the United States, believing this lie of multiple realms. So very, It's so various and Jesus, like there's so many different various points of view that are equal and that are neutral. And Jesus is only king over one. We have been so fat that we have allowed the enemies of God to tie us up, to remove freedom of how to worship and when to worship. We've allowed the enemies to teach us lies because our faith is simply between our ears and has no role in the public life and now unfortunately sometimes in our churches and yes even our families yes as Christians we have enemies both Satan and his henchmen those that hate God and his word and what is he say, what does Jesus say to this? He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. What does he say? If you're hearing, if you can hear God's word, love your enemies, do good, bless, and pray. Verse 29 says this, To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other. Now this is an often misunderstood passage because we don't really understand cultural things. And I'm not just saying, oh, we always got to take these cultural things. But they play a role in understanding what's happening here. This is not about self-defense, but about taking offense. You know, Exodus 22.2 says this, If a thief is found breaking in, and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen upon him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. God's Word does give us a clear, distinctive, you can protect your family, you can do that. Peter Lightheart says this, Jesus is not eliminating self-defense. He is talking about honor and dishonor, insult and shame. If I receive a slap on the right cheek, either the slapper has slapped me with his left hand or he is slapping me with a backhand. Either way, it's insulting. In Israel, the left hand is reserved for dirty work, using the bathroom and such. So getting slapped with the left hand is insulting. But a slap on the right cheek with the right hand is backhanded, an insulting slap rather than a danger to life and limb. The person who slaps you with the back of his hand is treating you as a slave, as an underling. He is not treating you as an equal. He is sweeping you away like a flea. And that's in Lightheart's book, 
the four, a survey of the Gospels. Why do I even talk about this? Well, this is kind of an important distinction here because this, you know, we don't do any type of, quote, violence. And, of course, we want to avoid these things if we can. But God's Word has clear directives about what this is about. I think the understanding of offense is really important here because the, what, what does he say, what does he remind us is happening here? You're being treated like a slave, as if to say, I am better than you. Remember who the hearers are. He is talking to his disciples. He is talking to the apostles. But who are present and who received the woes in the passage right before this? It's the Pharisees. It's the political leaders and religious leaders of the day whose calling was to be the intercessors for the world, to take God's word and preach God's word and to teach the world God's word. And what did they do instead? They thought they were so good, they were so righteous, they were God's special people that they were better than others. Does this offense thing begin to make more sense here? Like, oh, I'm better than you. And so now I'm going to treat you as if you're nothing. And Jesus says, you don't act like that. You don't take offense. We can give offense if it's God's word. But we are not to treat people like they're underlings. He goes on and says this, And from him who takes away your cloak... And remember, think about this. This was the exact uh, rebuke that John was giving in Luke 3. Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from, from him who takes away your goods, do not just ask for them back. He's saying be generous to a fault. Be generous to a fault. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them Likewise, now I got to tell you, that is not the human condition. People don't naturally want to treat people the way they want to be treated. No, everyone is born self centered and desiring their needs be met over the needs of others. After all, you don't have to teach a baby to be selfish, do you? Right? doesn't take them very long when they're small and they see someone have a toy for them to covet the toy that the other person has and to cry and to throw and to take and sometimes even to hit to get it. No, to treat people as you want them to treat you is only, is only possible through the work of Christ. This is not the sinful human. This is not where we start. Selfishness reigns in sinful men. We do not have to teach our children to be selfish. It just comes naturally. Verse 32 says this, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Now here's one of the things that I would point out. I try to be a relational person. I want to be able to speak into people's lives by having a relationship with them so they can hear me. If someone, think about this in terms of Jesus' actions and his directions here. If someone goes to take something from you 
and you give them what they're, they're taking from you and you run, there's no relationship there. There's no opportunity for conversation, right? They come to you. They have needs. They're, they're pressing on something. They're, they're not speaking rightly. They're doing wrongly. If you pause for a minute, if you say, I'm going to be generous to a fault here. I'm going to give you more than you're asking for. There's a pause. There's a, an opportunity to talk to that person. And we get reminded here that even sinners love those who love them. It's not a credit because sinners even do that. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that of you? In other words, that's not a righteous thing. And he is not discouraging loaning things to people. And people of God, we should pay back what we borrow. The scriptures have all kinds of information about that as well. But be careful. It's not a righteous thing just because I'm generous and I loan you money or I loan you things. For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return. You know, most of the time we don't want to be kind to those that are not kind to us. We don't want to give to those that are different than us, who act unkindly to us. But when we do these things, our reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This was the problem with the leaders of the day in Israel. And it wasn't just that it had suddenly developed. It had been going on for centuries. They were not merciful as God was merciful. They were not doing what God told them to do. It's very important that, to remember that God has always left a way of reconciliation to all people, but especially his own children. That's the point of the apostles. Now we come to the most misquoted passage of Scripture next in, in verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will not, and you will, excuse me, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now this whole idea of judging here, some people take this and they say, look, the Bible says judge, uh, judge not, right? They want to start with just that. They don't want to consider what God's word was saying before, what God's word was saying after. And even if they read just a few more verses here, they're still not in context. Because remember, what was Jesus doing right before this? He was clearly making a differentiation between those were, that were disobedient to God and those that God was raising up to be the new Israel, that is the church. What was the point? Why were the, why were the people of Israel and even Herod, this guy who's building these great big temples to God and to actually Yahweh? He built a, he, his temple was bigger and more glorious than Solomon's. Maybe he didn't have as much gold, but it was huge. It was big, big efforts. He wanted to be loved by the people. 
He wasn't trying to love and serve God. But what's going on here is there's a separation. I'm the special person. You're not. I am a person of Israel and you're not. Therefore, that makes me superior to you. And, by the way, I'm not going to do God's calling to you because I'm better than you. You can see that all through the Gospels. The Good Samaritan is a good example of this. But it's important that we recognize that we are to forgive so that we are forgiven. Think of Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First of all, it takes a humility to God. Remembering that God is your king and that we are humbly before him. Give us us this day our daily bread. It's a recognition of who provides. Who gave you the strength and the mind and the ability and the opportunity and your life in order to get bread? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, deliver us from the evil one. This is humility. We are to be humble. And again, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is Lord. That is the end of that prayer. But he doesn't just leave it there. In verse 14, it goes on and says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Now this is really tough because we get in this way where we are always eager to get God's forgiveness. It's much harder to forgive those in our family and our jobs and all the people that have done harm to us to forgive them as God has forgiven us. We want Jesus to forgive every sin we've committed, no matter how bad it is no matter how unworthy we are, but he is instructing us that, yes, I'm doing that, but I expect you to do that to others. That is really important for us to recognize. Again, in Luke 6, verse 39, it says, And he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable to them, saying, Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall in the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive, perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. There is a way to judge and to measure. What blinds us? What obscures our vision? Is it pride and disdain for others? We must use the eyes that God has given us. Remember, we talked about this before. Hearing is the organ of submission. You have to... Keep your mouth quiet when someone else is speaking to hear them, right? You're submitting to them. Eyes are the organ of judgment. But we must use the judgment that God gives us. 
It's an evaluation that we may with humility restore others to be reconciled to God. Remember Galatians 6 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, it's important that we remember that. What obscures us? Are we submitting ourselves to God? Are we coming from a point of humility? Again, in Luke 6, we see in verse 43, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. This is in the passage about judging. It's not about evaluating. Yes, we can evaluate. And yes, God does call church leaders to make certain distinctions at certain times. But do not think too highly of yourself. Remember the mercy that God shows you. And yes, evaluate the fruit. We must suddenly see that Jesus clearly makes a distinction of the right fruit that doesn't come from the wrong tree. Because he says this, For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And remember again this context of the failure and the judgment of the priests and teachers of Israel. We are called to evaluate and to judge the fruit and the works and the words of others. The question in these things is how is God glorified? Remember the judgment that was spoke about in Luke 3, verse 7. It starts out, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And again, don't think too highly of yourself just because you go to church or you go to a particular church. It's not about your pedigree. It says this in Luke 6, 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And you know, you can look up the passages in Matthew 25 and Luke 13, and you can see other places where the scriptures talk about, Lord, Lord, and judgment falls. There are many who are on their own agenda and not on God's agenda who will be shut out of the kingdom. I think this is really important that we consider this. At the end of Luke 13, it tells us this, and this is the parable of the, of the women who are preparing for the bridegroom to come. And they get locked out, Lord, Lord, open for us. And it says, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Wow. It says this, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. 
Verse 29 of Luke 13 says this, They will come, those are the ones that are being brought in, will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. This references the call to go to the four corners of the earth with God's word, making disciples and teaching them all that he has commanded. If we look, finally, we see foundations and floods and taking action. Again, back to Luke chapter 6, it says this, beginning in verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house. Remember, what's this? These streams beating against the house. Those are the enemies. And could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard it and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. We can fall to enemies when we don't obey God's word. And the ruin of that house was great. This is truly judgment. What action should we be taking? It is this. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them. We need to repent, be baptized, make disciples, teaching them all I've commanded. They dug deep. They did the work. They laid the foundation on what? Not themselves, but on Christ, the rock. We need to pray. We need to know God's word. Believe it and obey God's word with mercy and grace so that we are able to reconcile and restore others to Christ. These words here in Luke 6 brings forth warnings to the proud, idolaters of self, the self-righteous, and even those who are leaders in the church. We are to take dominion in this world by making disciples at home, in the church, and in the community. Here today, we need to remember that God is faithful. And He is calling people from all the corners of the earth. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we with mercy, humility, judge first ourselves, repent, and be restored by your mercy to make disciples and to teach the whole counsel of your holy word. In your Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.